Park Avenue. Roll again. Las Vegas. I really hate this place. I always have. To me, it's capitalism at its worst. A city built out in the middle of a desert with one specific goal, to empty your bank accounts. There was a time when this place was run by the Mafia, an appropriately dubbed Sin City. It seems like everybody in the world knows about it, and they all want to come here and live that experience that's sold to us. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. For me, what that usually means is what I take with me to Vegas for money stays in Vegas. <laughs> are you a lucky person? Well, come hit it big in the casinos. Hey, are you unhappy with your sex life? Well, come be with as many women as you can afford. Want free drinks in a first-class room? Well, if you play your cards right, you can live like a king. Well, that's what they say, right? Maybe that's how it used to be. And maybe, if you didn't pay your bills back then, there was a hole already dug for you in the desert. But these days, it's a giant shopping mall. Gangsters have been replaced by corporations. The high-class casino experience has been replaced with flip-flops, five-cent beers, and an all-you-can-eat breakfast buffet. I mean, there's a giant CVS pharmacy on the fucking strip right now. I am not kidding. I will say this about the city. It's glorious for people watching. I highly suggest that if you come to the city, then just travel around in Ubers and Lyfts. Talk with all the drivers and you're gonna learn a lot about the citizens. I mean, they're a wild bunch of transients with crazy stories about how they got here. I mean, they all have healthy gambling addictions and completely deny it. And they have such a strong love for this place that they call home. There was one thing in common with every local that I talked to. They all believed in luck. A higher power that would eventually do right by them. And if they just stuck it out to the end, they'd win big. I mean, it started to sound like the movie business, right? I'm always betting big on my ideas, putting all my chips on my latest project with the hope that someday it's gonna pay off. But unlike gambling, with the filmmaking process, you eventually beat the house. In my opinion, you're rewarded with these amazing life experiences. I mean, you get to work all the time, you get to travel all the time, and you get to meet these amazing people. That brings me to why I'm in this ridiculous city. I've traveled here with Dave and my buddy Tony Fernandez to visit NAB. NAB is a giant film and TV broadcast convention showcasing all the latest and greatest in camera equipment, editing equipment, and sound equipment. And it all takes place in this colossal building filled with salesmen trying to get you to buy the stuff before it becomes obsolete. I didn't come here to buy stuff. I came here to see friends. In this episode, I sit down with my old pal, Rod Clark. Years ago, Rod gave me my very first sponsorship and has continued to support all my work and the stuff we do here at McFarland and Pesci. Join me as I talk to Rod about sponsorships and how he chooses the artists that he wants to support. We tackle why he turned away from a life as a freelancer for a career in sales. It's all about addressing the elephant in the room. How can I make a living as a for-hire artist? And if you decide to take that 9-to-5 salary position, how can you contribute creatively to the filmmaking community? This is a good one, guys. 
Sit back and enjoy the new episode of The Lovable Process. Good morning, everybody. Uh, today's episode of In Love With The Process is a special one. We're actually out here in Las Vegas for NAB. Um, and traveling with me is Dave. And he hey, is shooting. Sorry to talk over you, Dave. You're not that important, no. <laughs> <laughs> He's uh, shooting video for us and uh, getting all sorts of content together. And uh, Dave has just turned 21. So, of course, we have to take him to Las Vegas. I am outing you to the world, my friend. What other way to celebrate? <laughs> yes. Also traveling with my longtime companion and my brother from another mother, Mr. Tony Fernandez. Hello. Tony has been with me for how long now? Uh, almost 10 years, actually, yeah. We have been on many adventures. Yeah, a lot of adventures. Uh, a lot of it had you peening people for a while. Yeah. Remember? Yeah. yeah, and then uh, we did a lot, of, a lot of music video work together, and uh, we're also uh, hetero yeah. life mates at this point. Yeah, it's been a lot of uh, a lot of hours worked and a lot of beers drank, so it's not bad. Ex awesome. No complaints. <laughs> All right, and I have uh, two special guests with us today as we're here in Vegas. One of the cool parts about coming to NAB is uh, you can look at a lot of gear, you can look at a lot of cool new toys, and, and mostly the show is pretty much like a, like a salesman uh, show. They try to sell you all this product. Yeah. Um, and I'm really not in the market to buy a lot of products right now, but I'd like to come out here to meet with friends because we have friends all over the country uh, and everybody sort of, sort of like collects at this conference. And it is in Vegas, so we get to go out and have some fun and drink some beers. Um, so two friends. Old friend, new friend today, introduce yourselves. Hi, my name is Rod Clark, and I am the founder of a filter company called Line Country Camera. Um, but I've been part of the filmmaking industry for a lot of years, typically with gear development and, and uh, marketing. You make that sound really boring, Rod. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> Rod's actually a really cool dude, and one of the first guys to ever give me a sponsorship if you remember correctly. That's right, yeah. Yeah, I was really excited um, when you rang me up. I was with Teradek at the time, and you had a project that was uh, kind of, I think it was the first time you were doing, it was a helmet cam with live operating, mm -hmm. and we had just come out with a cube video encoder at the, at the time. And so we sort of had just developed a piece of gear that allowed you to do what you wanted to do. Yep. And I loved the aesthetic of your work tremendously. Um, the stuff that you and Ian do together, I think is incredible. And so I was really happy to, to support it. Most people that call me out of the blue and need stuff, I just tell them to go suck eggs. But I was really, really, really excited about working on the project. And for the people at home that can't see the video, as Rod was saying that both of our faces are getting closer and closer to each other. <laughs> This is potentially a kiss that was going to happen in there, um, but last minute we didn't do it because we're friends, <laughs> and I have a girlfriend on so that's so, right. Yeah, yeah. So. it's not purely a love fest. Yeah. Okay. And then introduce yourself. I'm Robert Buchanan. I'm a full-time father and a full-time husband with a full-time job as a broadcast engineer and a healthy passion for filmmaking. Um, and I've been doing this since the DSLR craze took place and 
haven't been able to let go of it. It's just, there's a part of me that just has to be creative, loves being creative, and it's my outlet. And been trying to make it more of it than just an outlet and turn it into a, a functioning business. And it's cool to actually see that happen. Um, and that has been happening over the last few years. And just nice to see, nice to be in a place where you can uh, take the technology and the things that you love and turn them into a business and be successful with it. That's awesome, man. I think everybody around this table is kind of in the same position, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think most of our friends are, are trying to do the same thing, trying to survive. Um, and it's cool that you're, now how long, you, did you say how long you've been doing this? How long have you been doing uh, it? About 2010, yeah, is when I really got the itch for, for filmmaking. I started off with like music production and made beats and, you know, for hip hop and R&B stuff. But that seemed to not really pay off <laughs> in the long run. So uh, cameras just, you know, you point a camera at something and you capture something that's there and you create an image that's there. With music, you're giving birth to something from the very beginning. You know, there's nothing there. It's just purely out of you, you know. So I don't know, filmmaking just seemed like something that was a little bit more realistic for someone who had a full life already you know, to try to get into to have a creative outlet. Um, and I've you know, just stuck with it since. So you're, you're in like, what, seven years at this point? Yeah, at least, yeah. 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 So and you're starting to see like the, the benefits of being in this long? At this yeah, point? yeah, I'm starting to see the benefits, but at the same time, you know, when you're working 40 hours a week, it's, it's very challenging. It's very challenging to, you know, try to make something happen outside of those 40 hours, you know, but yeah, I, I am seeing some turnaround and you know, me and Rod, good buddies, he's, he's looking out for me. <laughs> yeah, but we've been doing projects together for a long time. And kind of in the beginning, it was, uh, you know, Rob was like the behind the scenes guy, you know, it was like, he, you know, we'd be working with somebody who's, you know, somebody like August Bradley, who's a Hasselblad master uh, awarded photographer, and he's a cinematographer. and. A director and you know we were working on projects with him and it was like okay we're gonna grab Rob and he's gonna do our behind the scenes and then like the behind the scenes would turn out like as good as the project <laughs> right? like I'm not even kidding you and so now it's gotten to the point where you know I've I've started my company um, and I want to produce a, a full-time series and I'm going like all right Rob like we're gonna do this together like you and me we're gonna we're gonna produce and develop this entire series together and yeah, I'm, he's just my creative partner on the West Coast. I mean, it's really great. And it's really cool because Rod bringing me behind the scenes on stuff like that, I was able to see how the big boys, you know, do it and see how the workflow goes. And, you know, it's a constant learning process. You know, don't ever think that you're going to be done learning if you're a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. there's always something new. And there's always something to get caught up on or... The key, the key is learning how to tell your wife that you bought a new camera. <laughs> I mean, really, that's what it is. This is the last one, I swear. <laughs> Where have you been? Yeah. It's like a box in the truck of the car. Yeah. I was exactly. on another woman, I swear. <laughs> I yeah, exactly. There's a big dent in his couch where he sleeps, you know? Holding the camera at night. You know? yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing about that, though, is, you know, honestly, the technology just keeps getting better and better. And... You know, I think I bought a FS700 and I was like, oh, that's it. You know, I got that in the Odyssey and, you know, it's just that, that's it. This is all the camera gear I'll ever need. And then 
Fred says, hey, <laughs> we've got cameras for under $10,000 now. And you're like, well, damn. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what now? So. Well, that's really cool, man. And it's really cool um, that you were able to get closer to Rod that way and sort of progress your career by learning and, and actually being on a set, being on a location, seeing how other people work. I think um, a lot of people may look down on those positions. I, I talk to folks all the time that are like, well, I don't want to be a PA or like, I, I really don't want to show up for free and help people out. But it really is a great opportunity for you to learn 10 times the amount you would ever learn in a film school. Because you, you get to not only see it in practice, but you also get to understand the politics involved behind the set. You get to understand um, you know, how to become a reliable human being. You know what I mean? And then within the constraints of um, the production itself, you can figure out how to be creative with what you have. And then I feel like all those skills are the things that you end up falling back on as you get work. So it's it's really cool that you guys have been able to do that. And I want to make sure that we're not all talking about I know we're all gear nerds. Um, but I don't want to talk about gear for this whole episode. I think um, I'm really excited to have Tony on for the first time because uh, we've been doing stuff for ages. Mm -hmm. And um, you, how did you get started in this business? Oh, God. Um... I was living in Florida. It's like 22, 23, not really happy with what I was doing. I was working at like an auto plant. I was making car parts. And on weekends, I was in uh, the independent wrestling business as uh, a <laughs> yes, ring crew member. Yes. So I would like build rings and then I uh, started doing some camera work with that. And it's not difficult camera work. You just follow the action in the ring and like try not to trip and fall. Uh, <laughs> Try not to show the fake hits? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's nothing you can do about it, you know. Um, it was a lot of fun, though. I, had a, I like some of the best times I've ever had doing that kind of stuff. Met some great people. But, um, you know, it's not really where I wanted to end up. I didn't see myself doing that professionally. Like, I mean, I'm not, I don't have, like, you know, the body for that, you know. You've got a wrestler's body. I didn't have, like, the time and the commitment to, like, actually train. Cause that's a lot of... Uh, that's a lot of work. That's like you commit your entire life to that. And uh, it was more into like the storytelling aspect. So uh, I met a, a mutual friend of ours, Aaron Taberski, uh, who at the time was um, was a grip electric. I think he's now a rigging electric over in the uh, local union up here in Boston. Um, and he was like, yeah, I need hands on, a, on set because I was up in town visiting. And um, I was like, yeah, oh, that's interesting. You know, I ended up moving up to Boston from Florida because I was sick of Florida. And uh, I just kind of happened to be on one of your productions, your uh, music video for Meshuggah's Bleed. Mm. And that was like my first experience ever on a set. Never went to film school, never touched a piece of equipment before. And just kind of walked in like, you want me to move all these things here and there and not, you know anything up <laughs> <laughs> I, the funny thing is is I don't even remember you on that set that was I wow. I thought that, that you made um, it quite an impression <laughs> <laughs> you kind of did the job of, of a PA is you're supposed to be like invisible and just be busy so <laughs> Mike had you filling the sandbags with sand well, yeah <laughs> I mean it was it was kind of the worst set that I have ever run like honestly and Ian and I were co-directing that and uh, we were going through a lot of miserable stuff on that shoot and I I'm ashamed to say that I actually lost my cool on that shoot badly. Um, and I learned some hard lessons, you know, being a young and dumb and arrogant filmmaker. Um, 
I really learned some hard lessons about how not to show emotions in front of people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because if you're stressed out, the entire crew you just and see talent, and talent gets stressed out, which is even worse. Yeah. Because the crew, they have their own stresses. Everybody's got to get shit done. But uh, once the, you know, the on-talent, like the on-camera talent's like feeding off your bullshit, that's kind of a bad... Yeah. I, I thought that everything on... I thought everything was normal. It was my first time on set. I was like, cool, everybody's fucking high-strung, and everybody's, like, <laughs> just drinking coffee and getting mad. I'm <laughs> <laughs> really, just throwing chairs in the back. Like, yeah, I, was, I was so upset that day. <laughs> but, I, I mean, like, it was... A, one of the cool things about, like you were saying before, you're always learning on this stuff. And as I made the transition from being, like, just a shooter and just a, a, a DP or a photographer to being a director... You start to understand that it's about human communication, and it's about really understanding what's happening on set. And uh, more often than not, like when I was doing 12KM, most of my mornings consisted of me just walking through and checking in with people and going, "How was your night? How'd you sleep? What's going on? How's life? You know, oh, you got this real stressful thing going on. Sure, let's figure out how to take care of that." Because your movie, your material is reliant upon all of these tools, all these human beings to be at their right. best. And so when I was younger, I was so concerned with like the perfect shit that I had come up with in my head. You know, like the frame's gotta be perfect and the pieces have to be perfect. And it's always this battle. And you hear a lot of directors talk about production being this fight because you have this vision when you put it together in the conceptual stage and then it never really lives up to that. And so there's a lot of directors that just really fight this and they, they feel like everything's out to get them, and they feel like the process is being an asshole to get to that point. Yeah. And through trial and error with myself, I really came to realize that I need to embrace the fact that shit's going to change. I need to embrace the fact that it's all going to be very fluid, have a plan, so that way when everybody turns to you with that look in their eyes, like, what the fuck are we doing? I can go, okay, let's go to the board, and let's take a look at what the plan is. But you also know when you go, guys, that's not working. Let's all chill out. Let's do yeah, something really it's, fun. It's easy to forget that it's supposed to be fun and it's supposed to be your passion. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you're supposed to have a goal in mind. Yeah. And, you know, if there's something that's in your way for that goal, it's usually yourself. Yeah. I, I think it's... Adapt I, to it's going so, on. I started in the movie industry, actually, when I was um, 11 years old because my dad is, like, this big-time Hollywood gaffer, you know? So my first job was, like, put C-stands... And put sandbags on C-stands, you know? And then it was like, okay, you can learn how to do a little bit of the lighting. You can learn how. So I went from being a very young person through my, my teenage years and my early 20s doing lighting and assistant camera work. And it's interesting now, I look back then, and I think because I grew up in the industry, I had like probably this colossal ego for a young person. Um, and may or may not have been justified with um, uh, talent or knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I look back and I think, yeah, but uh, how, did I, how did I get away with acting like that as a young person? Because yeah. honestly, if you look back, you realize, you know what? I didn't know shit. I really didn't. I mean, I thought I did, but there's, as you were saying, there's so much more of the human element. And I guess that's that's the interesting thing about being a creative. You have to have, you have to have confidence in what you can do. You have to have a bit of bravado to be able to say, "All right, you know what? I'm going to pull this all together and make it happen." If you want people to follow you, I'm going to fucking make this happen, right? 
Um, but then the other side is you got to realize, oh, well, it's not about me making this happen. It's about us making this happen. Yeah. You know, and now, you know, now I'm, I'm sort of middle-aged now. I'm, in, I'm 43 now, and I look at these projects completely differently. I have, I, I don't look at it as I have an idea and I'm going to do this and, you know, why aren't you people pulling your weight? It's now it's, okay, I have an idea. Who can I find that has the talent and the passion for me to be a great partner with them? And um, if I'm lucky, if I'm lucky, I can help facilitate that creativity in somebody, right? And yes, we want to get to the end of the project, but it's 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 a, it's a selfless thing, right? It's the the focus is on the project itself. Um, well, yeah, and, and completely agree with you on all of that stuff. And I, I feel like we're transitioning into the right mode here, which is as I approach middle age myself, I'm, I'm sort of confronting the, it isn't about the work. Because once you complete a couple of pieces and you screen these pieces, like we've done music videos and we've done films and stuff, and I, we've uh, premiered online to a huge audience for music videos, it screens for a day or two days and then it's gone. Yeah, like it's gone. It just gets lost in this sea of content. And then if uh, we work really hard to do a movie, I may do a screening or we may do a couple of different screenings for it. And we're the superstars for that night. You're there and everybody's like, this is amazing. This is wonderful. And then it's gone. It just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. So uh, that can't be the reason why we do these things. And as as we get older and we go through this process and Tony and I, are, I have done a lot of this, which is the adventure within like the adventure within a project. And the ultimate goal is to be, honestly, it's to be making enough money so that we can continue to somehow work in this right. field. So you don't have to have a real job. We don't have a real job. <laughs> yeah. And we get to go on these adventures. Like, um, oh man, like I, I really feel like we should go off on a tangent on this because I think some of the adventures that we've been on have been so much fun. Yeah, they've been wild. Uh, not like wild, but they've been fun. And it's it's good to have those too because when you're when you're busy working on a gig, you're or you're wrapping out a project that you wrote or you you produced. You kind of like as you're finishing it, you're kind of thinking about what's the next thing. And I think that if you're able to have fun and live in the moment, you're kind of distracting yourself from worrying about what the next thing is supposed to be. Yeah. And I think when you're worried about that, you're not in the moment and you're you're not having a good time making the thing that you're making now. Yeah. And that kind of screws everything up. Yeah. I, I actually was, um, I worked freelance in TV commercials, movies, doing lighting assistant camera work till I was about 25. Yeah. And I realized that I didn't have the stomach for the freelance life. And I had seen... Um, the bottom dropout on Hollywood a couple times through watching uh, my dad and my friends watching their careers kind of go through these ups and downs. You know, the, the Canadian dollar gets super weak and all of a sudden all, everything's in Toronto. Yeah. And people are here going, scratching their ass going, what the hell is going on? Um, and so I sort of went a different direction from being purely a creative and it honestly, in some ways, you could say I sort of chickened out a little bit, um, uh, which is a very humbling thing to say, a very humbling thing to realize. But I think what I've done is, is I realized that, that people who have the guts to go for it, people like you, um, I'm going to support that community. 
right? So throughout the course of my career, I've been with companies like Teradek who are creating tools for people who are want to do monitoring with the new generation of digital cameras. You know, um, I've worked with filters, I've worked with support gear. Um, my philosophy throughout the entire thing has been, these are my people, this is my community, how can I make myself a value to their community? It's not, I want to sell you something um, and take money from you and be like, yay, you know, I want to go, okay, how can I make something that is like truly of value to you, mm -hmm. that you'll, you want it, you know, you want to use it because it's going to make your process of your creativity either functional or more enjoyable or whatever. But for me as a person, I had to step back from the freelance world. I just went, don't have the stomach for it. I don't want to be losing my hair over, you do, yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be losing my hair over, you know, am I going to make a living next month? Yep. Yep. You know? And so I've gone down a route of, of I've gone down a different route. Um, and I have a huge amount of respect for people like the three of you guys who, you know, you never know when the well could dry up, you know, and as long but, and, and you have to make a commitment to yourself, which is, I'm going to keep doing great work and I'm going to make it happen. So you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I completely. And, and with you, um, I, that philosophy rings true because when, let's talk about the first time we met. So when we were doing this video, we were doing a video for a band called As LA Dying. And we'll, we'll go off on a little story here. Basically, uh, at the time, Ian and I were, were changing around how we interacted with bands. So in uh, the last episode, uh, I actually talked to Jesse from Killswitch, and we actually get into how hard it is to actually make a creative piece with a band because of all the roadblocks that are in between. So we, had, we cut through the fat. We actually started talking to band members. And I, we were on the phone with um, Tim, who's the lead singer from that, and talking through it with him, he wanted to do sort of this martyr, sort of Jesus death thing, which was weird. And so <laughs> we were also like, I had really kind of a bad taste in my mouth about a lot of the stuff that was going on in the music video. So I liked the idea of murdering, <laughs> of murdering the lead singer from right, his band. Right. And so we came up with this concept where the band gets hijacked and uh, kidnapped by a bunch of, you know, rebels quote unquote yeah, yeah. rebels and they take them out to the middle of the desert and they execute them in the desert and that's the whole concept for the for the video simple enough right but a we had to shoot in california e and i live in boston we don't live in california you know so dealing with gear dealing with all that stuff gets really complicated and we had a very tight budget as you do with music videos um so we designed this whole concept really around the budget constraints and knowing how we were going to have a lot of locations and we had to try to make it really interesting. So we decided that we were going to do a first person video. And this is before GoPros. So this is early it was, it was DSLRs. Just, it, was just, it was like the, the year before GoPro yeah. really took off. Right. They were around, but they, they were, were they were they, probably they, standard def, look like they, shit. They weren't, yeah, I think yeah. they were doing up to 720, but they couldn't do anything lower than 60 frames per second. Yeah. So yeah. we're like, that's out of the ballpark. And it looked like it looked like crap, and it, 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 no one saw it as professional. They hadn't done their marketing campaign. Yeah. Like well, the early GoPros were crap. Yeah. yeah. For yeah. sure. 
So we had to get a DSLR mounted to the front of somebody, and we had um, our buddy um, Nate Nate Ball. Was it Nate? Yeah, Nate built us this helmet rig, which was super heavy. It was like a motorcycle helmet, and it had a Weights counterweight balance on the back <laughs> right. of it, and a tray that came out in front of your face, and then you could put the camera in front of your face. Um, and we needed to be able to get preview, video preview. Yeah. And I was doing the research online, and at the time it was just radio signal stuff. So like uh, that poor camera person on top of wearing all this weight on their head would also have to wear like a huge battery pack and, and like a transmitter and all that shit. And uh, I was like, this is too much, too much. And we also had to fly all that out and ship it out. It was, the weight was just too much. And so I was just Google searching stuff. And I came across the transmission, like a network, small network sort of transition stuff, or transmission. Um, and Teradek came up. And so I was like, oh, this is cool. And so I found the piece that I needed. And I'm like, OK, where can I rent it? So I was just hunting for rental houses. And there wasn't any rental houses that had it. So I was like, well, fuck it. Let me just call them directly. And I, that's when I got you on the phone directly. And I think you tried to sell it to me initially. I think you were like, this is uh, what we got. This is what we. This is how much it costs right now. And I'm like, okay, cool. You know, uh, where can I rent it? I think it wasn't out yet. I think it was. It was very time. young. Yeah. I mean, it was like the birth of that thing at that time. It was. It, it was to the point where it was, that was pre-iPad. We couldn't even monitor to an iPad. We had to like drag it on a laptop, and um, it had just come out. So, I think the opportunity was there. Yeah, to I mean, do like a really good almost test piece with it. Yeah, because I remember because our, our video client wasn't even that solid at the time. Yeah, and I remember that's, being a. That's kind of crazy how much has changed because that was only six years ago. Yeah, yeah. It was six years ago. Six yeah. years ago, there was we couldn't monitor with, with an iPad. There was no decent working um, uh, thing like the Teradek at that time. I mean, yeah. There was no. Solid, it was all, it was all radio cameras like that. It yeah. was all, yeah. It was it was really difficult, and then. Um, I remember we had that conversation and you were like, okay, so it's for purchase, it really isn't for rental yet. And that's the moment where normally I'd go, okay, well, we don't have the budget for this, I'm gonna hang up the phone. And I had this weird epiphany because I had never thought about sponsors, I had never thought about any of that stuff. And so when I was like, well, why, don't, why don't you just give it to us? I think it was something like, why don't, why don't we just work together and you come out, and we're gonna do a music video. Where are you guys located? And you said you're located in California. I said, great, we're shooting in California. Why don't you just bring the gear, and you know, we'll promote the fact that we're using the gear. And uh, I really wasn't expecting anything. I was just like, yeah, sure. And I felt like I was just throwing that out there. The you know, yeah. it was a shot in the dark. And you were super cool about it. You were like, yeah. Well, I was, I was Googling furiously, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, these guys are metalheads, you know? <laughs> And I'm like, I look like the business guy, but I'm like secretly a metalhead, you know? <laughs> right? Like my hair fell out, so I can't have the cool long hair anymore. You're just, you're, right? you're, you're, it's so I was like, okay, these guys are super bitching, man. They do like really dark, really badass stuff. Okay, yeah, I'm in. <laughs> but then it was like this roller coaster, because you then were like, okay, let's do it. So we booked everything and went to go out. And then you called me back and you were like, hey, you know, would you want a Nikon? Would you want a Nikon, remember? And you, oh yeah, I was really well connected with, uh, so I am the gear pimp. Yes. That is for sure. Yes, yes. I've been in the business a long time. And so I have the connections at the right places where I can sort of make those sponsorships happen. And, and a good thing for your listeners is, if you're new to the game, don't ask for a sponsorship. Like if you have your shit together, 
and you are like, if, if you're a cut above, you know, and you have something to bring to the party, then let's talk about it. But uh, so I tend to plug in the right people with yeah. the other right people, right? So yeah, I think I got you guys an icon for that, sh for the yes, shoot, yep, because they were just shooting 1080 or something at the they time. They were starting that transition. Yeah, yep. and um, um, I think I was, I even connected you guys with Zakudo at one point. Yep. And I've flowed you guys filters from format when I was Oh with yeah, them. man, you've been a huge so, support. Um, there, there are certain people in my sphere where I'll, I'll try and get you connected. I'm, I am the gear pimp for you sure. You know, I am the gear pimp. The gear pimp. Um, but only if it's right, right? It has to be a win-win for everybody. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I do remember that. We, we shot that on Nikon. Yeah, it was which, fun. It was fun. And were you there for the shoot shoot? Were you there that oh, night? Oh, yeah, yeah, I was operating the playback. Do you remember uh, Do you remember that what happened to us that night? With the sheriffs coming yeah. in? <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah. And so the sheriff came and wanted to shut us down, yeah. and then he was a metalhead. <laughs> yeah. And he was so, so fucking stoked. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> well, we got to explain the story. we gotta, can we got to back yeah. it up a little bit. I don't want to jump to the conclusion. Yeah, it wasn't right? just a sheriff. Like, we were in the middle of the desert in, like, a national park, and we were in the wrong Yeah, park. we were in the we wrong, wrong part park. of it. Everything looks the same, so it's easy to get confused. It's not yeah. desert. <laughs> and uh, we've got, like, front, like, blank firing semi-automatic weapons. We've got guys in black masks and, like, flak jackets. And we've got like guys with cameras and lights, so we're like this like you can spot us in the middle yeah. of the desert because we yeah. have lights on everybody. And then like these three like trucks and jeeps and like these like yeah, yeah. utility looking like yeah. off road vehicles come pouring in, and these guys hop out like like what the fuck? What the fuck's going on? <laughs> well, what was going on was that Ian. So when Ian and I co-direct, we try to split duties. Yeah, you know, double headed beast at that point. Like you take care of this, I'll take care of camera. You take care of blocking. And Ian uh, wanted to be the operator. So he basically was wearing the helmet because we needed a camera operator that could act, you know. So he had to go through the process of hitting all the beats. And so uh, we had this scene blocked out where the guys are kidnapped in vehicles. And we start inside the back of a van as the van pulls up with the lead singer, the back doors open, light shine in, and they pull this guy out and they pull the camera operator out. And as you get out, there are two other vehicles, and all the rest of the band guys are getting sort of like herded into a spot. It's like this one-take flashlight sort of lit thing. And I'm sitting over the hill or wherever with the monitor, you know, and just watching as it happens. And so we had done like a couple of takes, and it was getting there. And with anything, you're just sort of finding it, and everybody's sort of finding their pacing. And uh, we started this last take, and it was perfect like inside the van, like the lead singer wasn't acting like he was being real. So yeah. it was like, that was cool. The doors open and the flashlights flare at the perfect point. And like, as they open the door, like the other truck roars over the hill, comes to a stop. And then like another truck roars over the hill, comes to stop and dudes are pointing guns and guys are getting pulled out. And then there's another truck that roars over the hill. <laughs> and I'm watching this on this TV by myself and I go, whoa, this is really cool. Cause it's like all this stuff happening. Yeah. That other truck roars over and this dude jumps out in full gear, yeah. like flak jacket, like, uh, like uh, AR-15s, yeah. like the whole deal comes like running up with the gun pointed on the entire band and our terrorists with like automatic weapons. 
and you just see Ian's hands in front of the camera lens going, oh my God, don't shoot us, don't shoot us, don't shoot us. And the, everybody falls <laughs> to the ground with their hands up. It was the most exciting moment. And I'm over the hill laughing my ass off, staring at this monitor. And, <laughs> and if I remember correctly, we were permitted, but just permitted like a mile away or something. Yes. And, they, and we were just like, we're in the middle of the fucking desert. We're just going to pull over here, right? We, like, we thought it was the right pullout, but it was like the next pullout or yeah, something. Yeah, it was close enough. It was close enough. We were like, all right, and the Brega. We're in the middle of nowhere, right? Yeah. And apparently the memo didn't reach these guys, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so they came in hot, man. They came in hot. It was quite a surprise. Oh. Yeah, and yeah, they were like, what's going on here? We're like, oh, we're shooting a music video. We're permitted. And then they're like, what, uh, what band is it? And we're like, that's a metal band. They're like, what metal band? As I lay dying, they're like, oh, yeah, I know them. And they all got, like, super excited and just dropped their shit. And they were like, can we get pictures? And like, they were hanging out with the band. Well, remember, like, when he went back to his car, his car, he had Pantera playing. He started playing, playing Pantera. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we're like, oh, rad. Like, this guy's so rad. So lucky. Yeah. Because there was, like, two guys that worked in the office, and it could have been, like, that 50-year-old dude that's, yeah. like, you know, pissed that he had to get out from in front of whatever TV he saw. <laughs> but the Pantera guy came yeah. and saved our ass. So lucky. And... That is not the only time that's happened to us. We've been in multiple situations where we've encountered permitting issues or like a range, like all that sort of shit. Because you're an independent, usually skirting the line of whether or not you have your permitting. Right. And often we run into people that are like, remember the guy that was a friend of uh, of uh, the Zarface or Esoteric videos that we were doing? I forget who he was. Those were badass. And, videos, and the guy, like random guy on the other side of the country was like. Oh, you guys did those videos, and we're like, "Whoa!" And he was like, "Yeah, do whatever you want." You know, yeah, it's like yeah. really kind of cool. Very lucky, fly by the seat of our pants kind of bullshit. Uh, but they make really good videos, you know, because the energy is there, yeah. and there isn't sort of that, you know, big crew slowing things down, trucks kind of stuff. And I think, at least with our early music video career, uh, a lot of that had that energy because it was that. I mean, the budgets kept at that. It's like we have to run around. That was a long day. Man. Oh, they always are. Oh, yeah. Always are. God. Yeah, they're long days. When always we, are. When we did that uh, that first Zarface video, uh, well, we did them both that weekend. They did one. It was just a performance piece, so it was just like cool lighting and like you know that kind of shit. I mean, like Inspected Deck came in, and but then the the second one was the next day, and that was our narrative piece, and that was like a sixteen hour. Pulling your hair out. Day. Yeah. They're always that, but that's what you get. I mean, like in this business, we have, I mean, I think I direct maybe, maybe 20% of the year. You know, like the rest of the time is like prep and talking and business development. Yeah. Like, so, like the amount of time that I'm actually behind a camera doing that kind of stuff is very small. But when it does happen, it's incredibly intense. Yeah. And it's it's usually just these rounds of just pummeling like 15 hour days of craziness. And I, that gets back to our point where it needs to be fun. Yeah, it, it's gotta be fun. It, it's gonna be intense no matter what, whether it's fun or not. Like, it should be intense. I mean, even if you do all the prep in the world that you can, it's still gonna be a tight shoot. Yeah, because there's no such thing as all the money in the world. There's no such thing as an easy shoot either. And if it is easy, something's wrong. Yeah, exactly. And the times that we've had easy shoots, it has been wrong. We've been missing something. Yeah. And yeah, we overlooked something, didn't realize it. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, let's continue talking a bit about uh, adventures. So let's get off all this stuff because we've been on some adventures because you've hooked up with us quite a few times Yeah. as we go out to California. And one thing that uh, we have done on this trip uh, as well, uh, and we've been exposing Dave to some of our, our stuff, uh, one of the tasks that you had when we first started working together was anywhere that we went, Tony's job was to find the shittiest bar possible, <laughs> like find the best places for food. And so whenever we travel together, that's usually your first task. Yeah, yeah, because when you guys are throwing together a project, it's like you and Ian are working out uh, contracts, the relationship with the label, if it's a band, or like the production companies that we're working for, or the agencies. You guys are working that all out, then you have the prep on the project, and you have like the script reviews and everything else. And then my job during that whole process is like research the town we're going to, find like all the cool spots, <laughs> you all do a good job. Where the, where the good food is, where all the dive bars are, and then we usually stay like an extra day just for us. Yeah. Because flying back after a shoot, that sucks. You're worn down, you're tired, now you gotta travel. Yeah. Like, you it's might, yeah, it yeah. sucks. Yeah. <laughs> so we usually stay like one or two days extra with our own money and just like bar hop. Yeah, we started, we started bar safaris. Bar safaris. I yeah. sent you guys to Cozy Car. <laughs> In San Francisco, San Francisco. yeah. <laughs> Which was one was the, Cozy Car? That was the place that had the old converted vans. Oh. Uh, and they're, they're like, just they, fucking... And the laminated crazy. porno mags everywhere? Laminated porno everywhere. Playboys, <laughs> <always> <laughs> they're the playing walls, vintage yeah. porn, like 1970s porn, like <laughs> on the screens in the bar. You would have loved this place, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They wouldn't you have let him in. He's too young. <laughs> you would have absolutely loved this place. The place was like, yeah, because it was all old... Uh, Playboy covers yeah. and spreads that they laminated the entire place with. And then they had in, in the back for like their booths were like old, um, those old back seats out of like vans. Yeah. And then they had two converted vans. They like she took the bodies and like chopped them in half and, and had booths. booths. And then they had like TV screens everywhere, and on them they were playing like, <laughs> like a like a mix up, like like a good supercut of it was Happy Days, it was like monster trucks and like car crashes and then just clips of porn like hard porn yeah, yeah. so it's just <laughs> like oh yeah it's like you know monday tuesday happy days and then like you know monster, yeah. bigfoot crushing yeah. a car and then like a porn clip because <laughs> we were out there with our with jarvis who is our buddy dp like other life mate he's yeah, a really great awesome. guy and that's where a lot of his slogans came from was going to that place yeah his, she's getting a good one. Look, yeah, he's on his phone, <laughs> on his phone texting, and he looks up at the exact moment that the plunk was playing, and he goes like, oh, wow, yeah, she's getting a good one, then right back down to his phone. <laughs> <laughs> the perfect representation of, like, a millennial at that point. I'm just yeah. on my phone. Oh, yeah, like, great, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we've been on some, like, really cool adventures in general tone. Like, um, yeah, we actually did a, like, the bar safari thing was, like, a really cool thing. That started in New York. We would we would go up to New York. We went to like a casting session. We were staying two nights up there. Was that then? Or no, 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 we, no, no, no. Remember, because what what happened was is I had made a series of uh, grindhouse movies for a while. So I was doing work for Suicide Girls, which is a whole other conversation. Um, but I had created this DVD and I had booked myself on a bunch of conventions. So like we had a Comic Con, mm -hmm. and then we did some like Rock Shock, convention. Rock and Shock in Worcester. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I had to go work a table, and I needed help, you know. And I said to Tony, I was like, look, here's the deal. I can't pay you, but if you come, we work this table hard, we sell some merch, 
all of our profits. We'll go to New York and drink. We'll, we'll go to New York. <laughs> so all the profits that we make from this weekend, we will blow in New York yeah, City. You got a deal on a booth, and then we sold a shit ton of DVDs and T-shirts and hoodies. Because we were hustling, because we wanted to go hard. to New York. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. We, were we were like hard. pulling like 15-year-old kids over going, you like titties and guns? You know, and just selling, <laughs> just selling DVDs. <laughs> we were like writing the line. We were like, uh, we were like soliciting our junk at other DVD stands and shit. We're like, oh, you should come check out these over here. Here's a business card. Come check us out at this booth. Yeah, come over and we're pushing we it like lead them over and like get them to buy a DVD. It was, it's terrible, but you know. Yeah, it, it, fed all, it fed all full two days of us. It's like it, it covered the hotel. Because like, we made like four grand. Yeah, yeah. We cleared like four grand that day and then the, I, I, it was the deal. So I was like, okay, I guess we're going to New York and spending $4,000, you know? Right. So we ended up going and booking a hotel in... Um, Lower East, Lower East Side. Side. Yeah. And then we were there for what, like three days? Yeah, Friday, and, Saturday, Sunday. And we gridded it, so we canvassed the area. This is the first time we did it. Well, yeah, I mean, you can only do so much research. You know, you know, like five to eight big spots that you want to check out, and then you just kind of like hop around and you find what you find. Yeah. And you meet bartenders, and you're like, where do you drink? Well, if you remember, right, so we, we started, you ever been on the Lower East Side? Yeah. Yeah, so you know, and yeah. it's changed a lot these days. We started, um, I forget what bar we started at. We started at this spot, we st and the rules were one drink per bar, and then we can snack. Because of course there's yeah. first dinner, second dinner, third dinner, fourth dinner, as you continue on this adventure. So one drink per bar. So we go in, we have a drink at this first spot, pretty cool, go to the second spot and meet with Ara, who's in 12KM, who's an actor yeah. in town. And as we're in this bar, we're explaining the rules to him at this bar, right? And we're like, okay, so one drink per bar, uh, and here's where we're gonna go. Now, sitting at that bar, the only other guy there was this dude in like a sports jacket and like a fedora. Yeah, he looked like Tom Waits. He, and he yeah. sounded like Tom Waits, yeah. remember? And he turns to us, he's like, you boys going on an adventure? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> and, and of course, we're like, yes, we are. Yes, we're going on an adventure. And he's like, I'd like to suggest some places. Yeah, and he was right. I forget the names of the, of, of the spots, but uh... We went to like three out of the four bars that he had recommended. Because one of them was like really busy, and we we're like, "Fuck that! We're not going in there. We're gonna wait ten minutes to get a drink." And we went to the oldest bar in New York. Uh, is it? I forget what it's called. It's the old the place that you go in and you have two beer options, light or dark. Oh, nice. And it has like troughs of like soapy water, less soapy water, clean water. So you just go click, 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 and then fill think, them up. I think they actually. Like, I think they were actually forced to shut down for a short while recently because of health code. Yeah. <laughs> I think I heard that. Yeah. yeah. I think it's like McSorley's. I think is the name of it. I think. Yeah. We ended up there. And then we ran into him again at like the last spot he recommended. Like two and a half hours later, we walk in and he's there and he's like, hey boys. And we're like, holy shit. Like, yeah, like the devil. Like he's yeah. like, he's like <laughs> the devil that just shows up. He's like, I'd like to join you on the rest of your trip. And we're like, yes, please. Like this, yeah. this is such a weird thing. We ended up having that really awesome, crazy adventure. And that, that became more important than anything else that we were doing. And I, I, I after that trip, we started to design uh, productions really and, and, and jobs it's, around it, that. it's the reason to do jobs in other cities is to visit that city and actually spend time in that city yeah. what's what's the point of traveling if you're just gonna go for work stay in your hotel room go grab some McDonald's or something and then head home you're not seeing the city at all and then you know um, we're very anti at least I am very anti-tourist shit 
Yeah. You know what I mean? Like most cities that you go to, it's like, oh, cool. There's a fucking museum and there's some goddamn fucking statue. I don't care. And you're waiting in line to see that shit. I don't fucking care. You know, I'll see it, the statue. I want to have a beer too, though. But I'll see the statue. Fuck the statue. <laughs> and so you go to the spot to do that. So I find that people are the best way to find out how the culture is in that city. And I find that the best way to connect with people doesn't matter what language you speak. Doesn't matter like what color you are. Everybody loves to eat and food. Common denominator. Common denominator, man. And as soon as you're sitting down, you could be speaking. A completely different language. You start to smell that garlic. You start to smell that stuff happening, and everybody has that same sort of vibe where it's like, "Yes, I'm gonna eat. Like it's time to fucking eat." And then, if you're smart enough to go to a place like a bar or a spot where they're preparing that for you in front of you, then you're part of that whole process. And then you can be talking to bartenders. You can be talking to chefs. Like our favorite time to go out and do bar safaris are like Mondays and Tuesdays. Right. Because the the best bars in the cities are dead. And you can actually go in and sit right there and talk to the chefs and talk to these people. And you learn a lot about mm -hmm. the city. Like, we just did this uh, Sunday here in, in Vegas. Yeah, first night here, we went out and then uh, met that bartender. He gave us a whole list of places that he likes to go to. He's a metalhead. Metalhead from Massachusetts. Perfect. And he gave us all these different spots. And it's really tough to do that here in, in Las Vegas because I feel like Vegas is now. Yeah, but it's also like, it's a fucking mall now. Like you get on the strip and it's like a giant CVS sign. Like, yeah. you know, like the whole marketing campaign of like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Like, what do you mean? Like my receipts from the mall? You know what I mean? Like you're yeah. essentially. Well, this whole town is like designed to distract you and take all your money. Yeah. That's I wish... why they have the big buildings. Yeah. That's yeah. You don't. yeah. <laughs> so you don't leave the buildings. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of really cool. Like, what do you think, Dave? Did you have fun? Yeah, it was uh, it was a lot different than I thought. You know, it's essentially just a bunch of bright lights and buildings surrounded by desert and mountains. It's like really feels kind of isolated, which is um, kind of not what I was expecting. And you're a, uh, you're a young buck here. Like the ladies like you here. You met a lady the yeah, other day. Yeah, I had an interesting uh, encounter my first night. Um, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Must be nice to be 21 and single. <laughs> well, I was uh, I was out trying to shoot some stuff, and I was walking back to the hotel through the through the casino, and I just got pulled over by this lady who was wearing practically nothing, and she was like, "Hey, you know, my friend over there thinks you're kind of cute. You want to uh, you want to come back with us?" And I just you know kept walking. <laughs> That's why we didn't hear from you until at the last yeah. minute this morning. Right. <laughs> Time travel, buddy. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I think that uh, we're off on these tangents, but really, the adventure for the work I think outweighs the work these days for me, which is very strange. Like, I love the work that we do. I love creating stories. I love telling stories. Um, but the actual process of making them are so much more important in my life now than the final products are. Because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as you, you look back on your life, and, and, you know, I was in a situation where I almost, you know, shit the bed. You sort of look back on your life and you go, uh, what have I done? Okay, well, I did this project, I did this project, I did that project. But then what the fuck does any of that mean? It doesn't mean anything, you know? And so having this newfound respect for like, all these little moments that we have and all these little steps really makes it really enjoyable and it 
helps with the, well, I'm working for free for two weeks. I'm really not getting paid for all this stuff, but I'm getting paid in this sort of experienced currency that I think is really important. Um, Yeah. So it's it's interesting. Uh, Travel, traveling as a creative definitely makes you wiser as a person, Mm. you know? I mean, for the last six years, I've been circling the globe. I mean, I've done Slovakia, Austria, Paris, Japan, China, every corner of the United States. I mean, I'm like the Johnny Cash song. I've been everywhere, man. And the interesting thing is, is, is what you find is people are, are typically really cool everywhere you go. Um, even places where you think that people aren't going to be really cool. As long as you go there and realize that there are cultural differences and that that's just the way they are. And maybe you're not perfect because you're from the United States. Um, if you can glean things from that, it's going to bring more to your creativity. Agree. You know, you can look at the world and say, oh, okay, I've, I've been to France. You know, I've been to Japan. I, I, I see the differences and I'm going to take a piece of what I learned there and bring it here. It's interesting because <clears throat> I don't want to talk politics, but you you look at the the sort of like uh, you know the nationalism that's going on right now in our politics, where they're like uh, you know, America only, blah 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 blah. And you go, you guys are fucking morons. Like yeah. get 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 on a plane and you know go to Budapest for a weekend and then come back and tell me how fucking great America is. You know why don't you realize that? The planet is great. The species is great. That we're all fucking great. That we're all interesting, and that you know uh, that somebody couldn't make the movie Blade Runner if they hadn't ever been to Japan. Yeah. You know, and and you just you, you take that in and you realize, oh wow, there's there's so much growing that can be done as a creative by getting out and traveling. And the the, the cool thing is is that you travel for this. You travel for work, right? So you're out there, you're traveling to, to places to make, to, to be creative. And while you're there, you don't even realize that you're becoming more creative, Yeah. you know, and you're becoming more worldly and you're becoming more accepting. And it, it's cool. I mean, Rob and I were having a discussion this morning. We, we went, we had crepes, right? I can't tell you. We're staying at the Paris. <laughs> we're staying at the Paris. You know, we're staying in Vegas at the Paris and we're, we're ordering crepes. And I was kind of saying like, yeah, it's cool. Like when you're in France, like they count differently with their fingers, you know, like one is with the thumb and then two is like the second finger. It's like one, two, three. And then, but then when you go to Japan, people count with their fingers differently where they start with an open hand. And it was like, they put their thumb down for one. They put their second finger down for two. It's like people count differently with their hands, depending on where you're from in the world. And those are the little things you recognize when you go other places. You know, if you're in mainland Europe and you get a bill for something, um, if it's like, if it was one euro and they wrote it as like one dot zero zero, they would use a comma instead of a period for the dot. And you would go, hmm, wait a second, that's different than the way we do it. And those are like microscopic little changes compared to the macro changes that you see when you go to like Shenzhen or Hong Kong, right? and it's cool to just take in all those little tiny changes and look at your world a little bit differently. 
And then you look at some of the things that you might take for granted every day in Watertown, Massachusetts, and realize that the things that you do at home are fucking absurd, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. You know, like you don't realize when you're cruising around, uh, you know, in lower Manhattan that, you know, wearing a necktie is like the stupidest fucking thing a human being could do, <laughs> right? But it is, Yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. It's great points, man. And I think even if you look at it on a smaller scale, like if you're not someone that is fortunate enough to be traveling, you know, for work, and if you're just looking at it in your hometown or in your in your in your city like just being able to go out like there are certain places that we can go one of the things i love about boston um before it starts to change too much is that uh you can go sit at a bar like charlie's kitchen in harvard square and literally sit next to like a blue collar guy you can sit next to like you know the guy that like is you know taking your garbage you can sit next to like a, a professor like a world-renowned professor and you can sit next to like uh, a guy who owns a Fortune 500 company and then a bunch of kids. And you can literally be at like a horseshoe bar and start a conversation if you're not afraid to and if you're not distracted and, and stuck in your own little world with the phones and everything else, if you actually turn to the person that's sitting next to you and say to them, hey man, what's happening? It's that simple. And it's that first initial thing that so many people are afraid of. And, and we have such a, a society right now of people that are very socially awkward and very afraid to do that initial reaction. But the reward from that is amazing because Tony wants to talk to me as much as I really want to talk to me most of the time. Sometimes you find that guy that's like, get the fuck out of here, dude. You, you know immediately who that is. But then you start this conversation. And if you're in that sort of horseshoe shape, then people are chiming in. Hey man, I do this and I do that. And then this guy that you've already prejudged, because we all do it, you walk into a place and that's how we're, it's a safety mechanism. This person's this, this person's this, this person's that. The fun part is when you break that down and you actually check yourself and you go, right. man, this guy, I had no fucking idea. And I always walk out of conversations like that dumbfounded because of my preconceived notions that I have in place for whatever reason, I find something really cool about people. And if we're storytellers, if that's what we do, and we're filmmakers and we're, you know, podcasters, whatever, we're telling stories, it's important for us to have those interactions because then we actually represent our culture. We actually represent the people that are around us. And we're not just making it what we think it is. And we're, we're putting it through our own filter. Does that make sense? So I think that's a really good point, Rod. And I think you can do that on a larger scale. And if you are lucky enough, to, to be paid to travel and to be able to have handlers when you go to places and they can break the ice for you, which is really nice, which we get a lot. Um, but even if you're in your own hometown and you're hanging out with a bunch of people, like go out on your own. And it doesn't have to be, I'm, I'm talking about bars and beer and you know, maybe we have too many drinks all the time, but it can be <laughs> as simple as you know, sitting in a park next to somebody and turning to them and going, hey, what's going on? Or if you're riding on the bus with somebody and you, you both are obviously bored just turn to them and go what's happening yeah you know and then there's the the sort of the macro the macro element of travel um you know just a quick uh, uh anecdote would be like um united states comes from europe europe you have sort of um this sort of old-fashioned european chivalry yeah. right so we're we're more interested in personal space and uh 
then you go to China, you land in Beijing, they put you on the train, and you get in the train, and the door is almost closing, and then the next airplane full of people shows up, they open the doors, and they literally fucking cram you in there. Like, cram you to the point where you're like, okay, can I keep breathing? Like, you can't, you, your arms are at your side. If you're standing in the middle of the car, your arms are at your side, and you're not gonna get your arm up to your face. So there's no point in trying to hold on to anything because you're just gonna lean against the people next to you. And they literally cram like another 15 people into the car. And you're like, oh, okay. Like, there's no personal space here because there's none of that European chivalry in their culture. Hmm. And at first you go, well, geez, that's rude. And then you go, well, no, that's just the way they are, right? That's just the way they are. And you go, well, they got more people on the train than we did, so maybe it's more efficient. But you have to realize that, that there's this macro change in the culture, yeah. you, know? you know? The first time you go to Asia and you see everybody chewing with their mouth open, you're like, well, wait a second, what the fuck? <laughs> and then you realize that's how humans eat, unless they're told not to, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> you know? Right, right. And you go, huh, that's interesting. You can like breathe and eat at the same time through the same device, <laughs> you know? You know, Rod, you're so worldly. <laughs> I had no idea. I've been around the last couple <laughs> years, man. <laughs> but there is the common denominator, and it's the Irish pub. Oh. So it doesn't matter where you go in the world, yep. you can find an Irish pub. I guarantee it, and I can prove it. <laughs> all right, all right. I think so, we have to try this sometime. I think, yeah, this is. This I, think is true. I think we're talking about like a European safari for for bars at this point. Yep. I mean, I've I found an Irish pub in Japan. I found an Irish pub in China. I found an Irish pub in Hong Kong. I found an Irish pub in Slovakia. <laughs> I found Irish pubs in England. No, is, the, <laughs> right? is the is the eating always good at all of them? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, food's great everywhere. Well, at the Irish pubs, the food's always good? The beer's always good. Okay, yeah, I was going to say. I'll like, go that far. You know, so. Irish food is like, okay. Yeah, the yeah. beer's good. Okay. All right. All right. Well, I mean, have you been anywhere really cool? <laughs> I go nowhere. Oh, come on. <laughs> I, am the, I am the yin to his yang. Yeah, I'm exactly. the exact opposite. And he's kind of trying to drag me out of that. And... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm the guy that's always been on the uh, edge of the cliff looking overrated jump and uh, haven't jumped yet, you know, yeah. and it looks what's, scary what's down keeping there. You, what's keeping you from jumping? Well, you know, it's, it's something when you're, when you're young uh, to have these opportunities come at you or you can run off and take some risks. But as you get older, you have more responsibilities. Those risks are harder to take because now it's not just your fat in the fire. You know, it's you're taking everybody with you, you know, so it's. It's, it can be scary. It can be very intimidating uh, to, you know, go out there and just freelance and say, okay, I'm not going to worry about a 401k or, you know, <laughs> benefits, you know, health care, especially with all the changes that could possibly come with, you know, health care. There's, there's just a million things that you could worry about, mm -hmm. you know, but I don't know if you'll ever be happy if you don't take the risk, you know, and that's the, that's, that's the hard part is like you have to take the risk or you'll never live that life that you want to live. That's the gamble, man. Like, I deal with this with my brother all the time, because my brother, I don't know if you've ever met my brother. My brother is a firefighter, civil servant. I don't think I have, he got out of high school. He knew, like, when he was a kid, he loved fire trucks, and he got right into it. He's, he's great. Like, he's an American hero. Like, he ends up uh, in my short films every once in a while, and I 
like an asshole cast him as the American hero. And I usually have him play like a like an ambulance <laughs> or an EMT guy. But he's he's very driven, um, and he uh, has a plan for retirement. He's got a plan right. for his future. He's got all that stuff, and that's what he does. And I'm the polar opposite, where I feel like I'm living my life now, and I'm sort of like, eh, we'll see what the future provides. And like, it's with me, it's just sort of the, <laughs> it's it's me just going, I'm, I'm not going to worry about it. It's, right. it's like it's yeah. it's that point, and, and of course you make a great point. It's it's very simple for me to do that because I I had made a decision earlier in my career that I wasn't going to have kids for a long time. I wasn't going to get into that position until I felt like my career was going to be what paid me for all those things. So I've made a lot of sacrifices to be at this point as far as like my personal life goes. Um, and it makes it easier for me to be able to take those risks. I don't think there's a right or wrong way to do it. Like I've met people that, you know, have come up that way where they have that, you know, nine to five career, like our buddy Rudy Hippolyte, who does all the documentary work. He works for Harvard and he um, uh, would hire me to do uh, internal documentaries for years. And he's my oldest client. I mean, I've been working with him for like 16 years and on his off time, he would plan these big document, like yeah. big documentaries. And he's had, his first one was on like ESPN class, or not ESPN, it was on Oprah Network, um, Magic Johnson was into it, went into the festivals, really great, got picked up by Snag Films, distributed. And then his new one that we shot uh, on Inner City Gangs, which is really cool, we got to go and have an amazing adventure, that's a whole other podcast, amazing adventure in, in our own city in parts that because of where I come from, I'm not allowed to go into and attaching ourselves to this documentary gave us access to like beautiful areas of our city and really amazing people that, you know, race aside, I, I was able to get in there and be a part of it. Um, but he does all that on his, on his downtime, which yeah. blows my fucking mind. And see, that's mind. the world that I'm in. I do stuff on my downtime and it is, you know, a creative, you just have a drive where you have to do something. You know, you can spend eight hours, your eight hours of your day where you go to your job and you do your job and you make it through that job and that eight hours feels like 12. And then in your downtime, if you're, you know, you do a filmmaking job and you can spend 14 hours on that job and it feels like three hours yeah. because you love it. <laughs> you know, you love every minute of it. You love the whole entire process of it. And it's just rewarding, you know? So it's hard to shake, you know? When you, when you have a day job and you just have a passion to do, you know, other things, you know, uh, get something out there. I don't know if it's, you know, somewhat, some of an excuse to buy the toys and have the toys, you know? <laughs> Back uh, to gear talk again. No, 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 not, not to gear talk, but to, it is, you know, there, there is some, you know, levels of accomplishment, if you will, um, to, say that you've done something that was creative and it paid you, you know, you're able to pay yourself with that and it justifies it, you know, mm -hmm. it justifies your passion. And instead of going and sewing a button on a shirt, you know, I think, 20, <laughs> I think for Rob 2017 is the year we push the boat off the dock. <laughs> that's, that's well, the goal. I have high hopes for you, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciate it. Cause it's, it's a scary jump, but once you get, accustomed to that rhythm which is this it's that wave rhythm right and it, and like in the beginning 
you're really fucking stressed about it because you, you come out and it's low. And it's just low. And especially when you're young and you don't have that sort of history. So like if you make something that gives you a good jumping point, like if you create a project that gives you some attention and gives you some clout, uh, because in, really in this business, like Rod was saying earlier, it's all about your product. Like we, we talk about these great adventures and we talk about the stuff that sort of gets us through this viciously competitive business. But at the end of the day, people go, well, send me your stuff. And you look at the stuff and you go, wow, okay, this guy's really great. Or I think I can be involved with this and this will be a lot of fun. So like if you can make a project that helps you go and, and do that jump and that gives you that clout, then just do it, man. Because right. then at that point, you can just ride it's a gamble. It's always a fucking gamble, but at least you can ride the confidence that you have in saying, look, I know I can pull this shit off. And then the confidence in people looking at what your work is and them saying, like, yeah, he's fucking good, you know? I think another part of it is, like, deciding what you really want to do, mm. you know? Um, there's a one-man band mentality that is strong, you know, out there that it's like, okay, I'm going to <laughs> write this project. I'm going to produce this project. I'm going to direct this project and DP this project and edit this project and color this project. Right. You're going to do everything, the whole thing. I call, the, I call those guys ninjas. They're the yeah, one man army. And there are some really great ninjas out there, you know. But, um, you know, are you really in love with the entire process of it? Or do you like, you know, shooting? Do you like directing? What, what is your thing? And what I've come to is that I, you know, I like shooting. And, I want to learn more about, you know, shooting. I'm, I'm constantly learning about shooting and how to make it better. And, you know, I, I me, my, me particularly, I don't care to edit very much. <laughs> you know, <laughs> most, most shooters down. that I know, yeah. Don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I didn't know that at first. You know, I had to figure that out. That I didn't, you know, enjoy the editing process. That's just something that I had to learn from editing. You know, and yeah, sure, I'll throw together something, and you know, and. I do enjoy some portions of editing, but I would much rather go on to the next shoot and stay in that world because that's where I like to, you know, that's where I like to be. And I think if you can realize where you want to be, you know, the sooner the better if you can realize where you want to be, you know. And that's nothing against them. Your, your batteries are a little hot there. <laughs> wow, our, our battery was smoking. Were they touching each other? <laughs> yes. Oh my God, that's funny. Sweet you know, job, Tony. So, <laughs> but no, but I'm just saying, you know. So, the, so crisis averted. If I can jump in there, sure. It's fascinating that um, we are asking so much of the ninja today, because I remember having grown up in the movie industry, mm -hmm. and and working on TV commercials. Okay, so you go to work on a show. Your job is either like you're the PA or you're like a grip or you're a director. And then like you could even subdivide that and go like, okay, you're either like the best boy grip or you're like the key grip or you're like one of the grips, right? So you're like the best boy grip, right? But you're not the key grip and you're not the other guys. And like you're a freelance guy and that's what you are day yeah, in and day out, you know, until eventually you get to be the key grip. But Nobody's going to be like, oh, we'll do it on the next job. Can you be like the prop guy? <laughs> you know? And that was like, you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago. It, it, and, and there was a structure to it. And there was um, sort of um, an apprenticeship aspect of it. Of, you know, you start, as, you start as the PA and you figure out, well, what does everybody do? And you figure out, okay, what, do I, what am I interested in? And maybe you slip into that 
role yep. and you grow within the department and then um, you know there are guys uh, who spent their whole lives as a grip you know there's famous grips like Dickie Dietz like is a famous grip where you know he was like the guy and people you know tend to, you know grips get a lot of stick right everybody kind of jokes about being a grip but you know what there are grips that are like fucking legendary filmmakers who never aspired to be a director and never saw an editing bay, probably never sat in on dailies in their lives. Um, and that was their role within the filmmaking world. Which is, a, which is an admirable it's role. It's a fucking incredible thing, yeah. right? It's an incredible thing. Because if you break it down, because we just say grip here, right? Yeah. But grip is a big deal. It's yeah, a huge it's thing. And if you have, right? a, if you have a, a, a great, uh, I mean, because at that point, you're almost like an engineer. Yeah. Where like you have to understand structure, you have to understand, like uh, you know, if I'm putting a dolly track down, you have to understand all of that. It's stuff. the most creative and diverse job in filmmaking. Yeah, for sure. Because it's like giving a kid a Lego set and saying to him, "Okay, I want the Millennium Falcon from scratch. Now go." And those guys are amazing, and there there is the apprenticeship aspect to it, whereas in 2017 it's i'm going to go buy a canon 5d and guess what i have all the tools but nothing nothing uh of, of the apprenticeship and the growth you know um i was watching a show the other day that was produced by um I, there's a there's a, a watch collecting website called hodinky and they typically produce really great little um um pieces like little video pieces on YouTube they do this like a little interview series well they did like a live interview series um, and it was two two people two interviewers and then they set the interviewee subject between them so the guy was answering questions looking left looking right looking left looking right looking left looking right it was like okay wait wait <laughs> if there had been an apprenticeship aspect to this you would have learned you would have learned yeah. you know I, I did a job uh, a few years back where I come from the gear side well I work in the gear side but I come from the production side so I kind of like to sneak in once in a while and sort of do a job like I went and helped my dad he's a gaffer and I went and like I was like his lighting guy for the day <laughs> right? That's cool though. Yeah, right? Yeah. And and I've gone and like gone and got jobs working with like high-end fashion photographers as like a camera assistant. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Just to like stay relevant, you know, and, and, and keep into it. And so I was working uh, and you know, here I am at the, my current position. I'm like the VP of marketing, but I'm working as a lighting guy on this job and we're working on this little piece where it's a it was a big uh, creative agency. And they wanted to do like these on-screen testimonials and they wanted to have it look like the Johnny Ive videos, like white background, you know, yes, yes. telling their little fucking story, blah, 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 right? I've done plenty. Yes. So they hired some fucking schmuck who is like, I got the DSLR, I'm a director, we're going to do a two camera, right? So we're going to do a two camera shoot and one is close and one's wide, you know, it's, it's like, this is like standard shit, right? So what do they do? They put the guy on the set and they put one camera on one side of the guy's eye line and the other camera on the other side of the guy's eye line, right? So now every time you cut, it's like, look left, look right, look left, you know, camera one, camera two, camera one, camera two, yeah, you, know? Yeah. you know what I mean? And so finally, I kind of was like, 
<clears throat> you know, like, fucking move the camera, you know? <laughs> like, put the camera over here. It's like, you're the director. Like, you should have been through this a million times as, like, the lowly guy before somebody handed you the fucking keys, right? Well, I mean, nowadays, they, there isn't... I feel like as soon as productions started to have okay i feel like as soon as the internet kicked yeah. in and digital filmmaking and digital filmmaking kicked in and as soon as you had another broadcast outlet that they could say well this isn't broadcast so this is no longer union i right. no longer have to deal with any of that stuff right so then that became a, a whole marketplace within itself and yeah. without I go both ways on the union. I think it's great. I think it's also a pain in the ass. Right. But without having that protection there, then you have uh, a client base that is just forcing those prices as low as they possibly right. can go. And the quality goes with it. Right with it. It's like a pyramid that's getting wider and lower. Yep. Right? Yep. It used to be there was a pyramid. Like It, it used to be that if you wanted to shoot a commercial, to get your hands on let's say a, you know an Airy 435 film camera to go way back, you know, <laughs> yep. um, you know you were gonna have to rent that sucker, you're gonna have to rent a dolly, you're gonna have to have a crew um, to learn how to do that. You were gonna be a PA who like stole the fucking camera truck for the weekend. Yeah. Right. You're like, oh, I'm gonna pick it up on Saturday, and all Sunday, you're just fucking. You were fucking shooting like crazy, <laughs> and then nobody knew it. And then Monday came, and you're like, da ding, like I made a little spec piece, right? Like, you had to really fucking try. Yeah. Now, you could go shoot for under a thousand bucks, right? Under a grand, you know, you could like talk your mom into buying you a little shitty DSLR that shoots 1080p and you could make a supposedly cinematic piece. But I think craft is extremely important. And totally. craft comes from not just from, you don't have to take everything in like a pedantic fashion and learn from a school, you could be the autodidact who teaches yourself, but you have to have gone through it. Mm -hmm. There has to be time spent on the rungs of the ladder before you get to the top. Well, and I don't want us to, because we have a lot of listeners that are the one-man band show, and I don't want yeah. us to feel like we're, we're telling them that, you know, you guys aren't worth it. it it's right. just, I, mean, I think what it, for the learning process in general, I think that if, if you're teaching yourself about technology and you're like, look, I have to stay up to date on the latest camera, I got to stay up to date on the latest software, great. And then you have to teach yourself like creatively, like how do I compose my shots? How do I do this? Fill some of your time with just going and working on these yeah. larger don't, structured don't things. Don't be such an egotist yeah. that you say to yourself, well, I'm my own director. Yeah. You know what? Go out and see if you could get a job as a set dresser or a grip or a lighting technician. You yeah. know, yeah, and to cross that line, I even think an you have assistant to, cameraman, yeah, like to cross that line of professionalism, you have to know how the system works, yeah. and you have to fit into that system. You know, um, I've seen guys that can do great music videos, but they can't do any corporate work; they just suck at it. You know, or vice versa. Yeah, you know, it's it's really you have to know your role. And this is something that I think we'll get into on on further podcasts, um, uh, but I, I really think that. In our business, time and experience really saves your ass. And I think that there's everything in theory, and you go out into that theory, but you're not in a vacuum. It's not like you're, you know, painting a picture. 
where you go, okay, so if I mix these colors, then these colors are going to make that colors. And if I buy this brush, and then I use this brush in this painting, and then boom, I got this thing. Your brushes and your paints all have their own personalities. They all have their own dramas. They all have all their own stuff. And so you're in this sort of like circling hurricane of of of, of random things that are going to fucking happen to you. And I think the only way you can start to grasp how to control these things, especially as a director, is actually see someone else do it. And honestly, see someone else fucking fail at it. Yeah. Like, you actually have to be there when someone is doing a bad job. And then if you're low enough and you're in that PA position where if you're smart, you run around, you make friends with everybody in all the different departments, and you're hanging out with those guys, you can see how a bad decision at the top just sort of filters down and how it trickles and how it does all this stuff. And if you're really smart, you can start to see how timing works. And you can see, like, okay, so that asshole DP, instead of planning on his day and saying, hey, we're going to shoot everything in this direction, they're flopping sides all day. And so as they're flopping sides all day, how long does it take that grip team to take two 12Ks and move it to the other side? Right. And so then you start doing that it's math and you start time. seeing yeah. that stuff so that when you're in that position and you go, okay, A, I should probably plan this all out right, but B, if I'm fucked and like a client asks me to go do this thing, I know that that's going to take like 45 minutes. So do I scrap the shot? Do I keep the shot? Like, what's my day plan like? What's all my stuff like? And that's the kind of stuff that, I mean, you've been in that position for years, Tone, like being that fly on the wall. And now, I mean, you want to talk about one-man band stuff. Tony's a great shooter at this point because you've spent years working with me as a shooter. You're mostly in post now, but you know how to cut. You know how to do edit. Like, honestly, Dave, if you want to get into the business, you talk to Tone because you've done almost every position that you possibly can on films yeah yeah I've always just wanted to be especially when I was starting out you want to be that guy that's like that set of hands that can handle anything whether I'm helping somebody swap batteries in a camera or I'm helping move C stands or I'm actually helping set up like silks and flags or like running you know cable you kind of learn how to do all that stuff and then now it's it, it is mostly post for me yeah helping Ian with uh, the assistant edit work some cutting too and then why'd you land on post um, I like color. Mm. I really enjoy grading. Um, that's like my favorite thing. Yeah. And like, now it's weird because like the mysticism behind color grading is like out the window. It's gone. Everybody spends time doing it because it's so distilled. But you still have to learn to be very good at it to be on the top of that chain. And there's a lot of people that, you know, they can daylight balance. They can, you know, get an image to look correct, but they don't know how to grade. And I'm kind of learning um, that process of coming up with. There's no such thing as like a signature look for a grader, but like there's like a signature set of steps that you have to get a look. And kind of trying to like figure out what that is with whatever software you're using. Do you, you know, consider like the camera work that you've done? Does that help you in you know in post knowing? You know how to shoot, or you know oh, for sure, that, yeah. that definitely plays yeah. a role in how you grade. Um, yeah, that definitely does help. Yeah, because I know, um, I know how the, the the end image is supposed to look. Like I know the difference between exposures now, which is probably the most important thing that I've yeah. learned as a colorist now. Um, but yeah, that that's helped a lot. And actually, being uh, working at, as an assistant editor has helped a lot because I know how to set up projects, any kind of project. I know how to how different file types work. 
I know um, the whole logging process and dealing with that data has definitely helped a lot more in, in learning to be a colorist. Um, because it, you know, it the working in Resolve, it used to be such a pain in the ass to set up a project. It's become more streamlined now. It used to be an absolute nightmare you have to <laughs> open up the project, set the project, set your drives, close the project, reopen the project, and start your your work, and then import everything in. But like now, um, you know, you can just start going. And I think that's because Resolve is trying to get more into like being an editor, right? Which is weird. It works, but it's it's such a weird concept. But I mean, right. And I think like this new one this year, like they they're integrating more audio into it. So now it's like you can bounce your audio out straight to Pro Tools and like. But they're doing that whole one man band shit. Like even the yeah. even even the even the manufacturers are trying to like thing, yeah. do that one man band thing. And then from a from a filmmaker standpoint, okay, look, if you're gonna do a small little piece, if you're gonna do a piece with your friends, or if you're gonna do like a real run and gun kind of thing, then one man band is great. And I've done plenty of that stuff, and I've made my career on doing a lot of that stuff. But then as you start, you hit a ceiling where you go, okay, but I wanna have some like control. And I wanna have some like really thought out craft in my, in my work. And then what you find is that you start to rely back on that 100 year, 150 year system that is in place where it's like block light shoot and like the, all that stuff that is there for a reason. And even in post-production, all these steps are there for a reason. And what ultimately you're trying to do is create a machine, uh, like a, a, a perfectly wound clock that is waiting on the go from whoever has the creative idea to begin with. And that creative idea obviously is controlled by the amount of funds that are coming at it. That creative idea is controlled by the amount of resources and really the creative talent of that person. The rest of this stuff should just be able to run with it, you know? And uh, you're seeing that shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink. Like that's the Hollywood system. And sure, there's a lot of like bloatedness and a lot of slowing down and a lot of that stuff that happens in there. But I can't make the kind of movies that I want to make doing it one-man band. I think the benefit of the one-man band, though, is just to teach yourself. I mean, when you're out there and you're doing the one-man band thing, you are learning every you know aspect of it. And what I take away from running around and doing the one-man band thing is, okay, now when I shoot, I'm familiar with the post. Yeah. So, you know, I can talk to a colorist and, you know, speak their language. You know, even if that's not something that I particularly want to do, um, I need to be on the same page because if I'm not on the same page with my colorist, my image <laughs> is on the line, yeah. right, you know, right. and, and they're not going to blame him. They're going to blame me. But you know? I, I, I completely understand that. And I, I don't think I think there's a difference between making sure that you familiarize yourself with that and you put yourself through that process. And then there's that difference between categorizing yourself and promoting yourself and saying that this is all I do. Right. Yeah. Like if you're going to hire me, I shoot and I do this. And a majority of the time, whenever I encounter people that do that, they're folks that are desperate for all that loot. Mm. So it usually comes down to like, what's the budget overall? Yeah. Oh, you've got, oh, cool. So this has got like a $50,000 budget for this whole thing. Oh, shit. Well, I can edit. I can shoot. I can do this. I can do all that stuff. Okay. Mm. I, I just need to hire a sound mixer. I need to hire this guy. So, okay. So it's going to cost me. Three thousand dollars. Okay, great. Okay, yeah, no, I got it. I got it all in control. But you learned something great. through yeah. all that. Like the, the benefit <laughs> of of putting yourself in that position, if there is only one benefit, is that you learn, uh, 
that you can't skimp on any of those steps along the way. <laughs> yeah, for, he's true. like, you're like, yeah, I'm, okay, cool. I know how to run sound. I can, I can shoot. I'll be the director. I can edit in color. Cool. I can do all that shit. And then you start doing it, and like you're like, well, I mean, you know, maybe I don't have to log all this footage. I'll just start cutting. Or like maybe you know I don't I don't have to slate every take because I, I know what I'm doing. And then like the next step is fucked up because you messed up that that you t- took a shortcut. Yeah. That's a good point, though. But yeah. you don't learn that until you go, I, I can do all these things. And you're trying to juggle, and you're like, no. <laughs> I, I don't know idea. how to juggle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> At that point, you're like, okay, clone me. Like, yeah, please, exactly. I need like yeah. six more. And then you go sort of go through that process that I went through when we started to work together, where I'm like, okay, great, but now I need people to work for me, and then I have to teach folks that... At the same time. At the same basically. time. Yeah. So it's a very difficult thing. If you're outside the system and you're a one-man band, and then you're even trying to make it legitimate, the, the teaching process it all takes fucking time. Yeah. And I think that there is no such thing as a shortcut. I think there are some people that are lucky and they fall into like lottery wins and they they yeah. get their access. Mm-hmm. But I mean, ultimately, they have skipped all this really great development time. Which yeah, you know, I'm on the verge of Twelve Cam potentially becoming a big film right now, and. I think it's the first time I if it was like six years ago I would have been scared out of my mind oh yeah yeah and I think it's the first time in my career that I've I'm like I've done I got it like I I know enough about this stuff I'm not I'm not a master but, but I you've know learned enough, enough about you've it. learned enough through because for a while you were kind of doing like the one-man band thing. I mean you yes. were a DP director yep. and you used to edit your own things and you color your own work and I think that by taking like a step back and letting other people fill those roles, your um, your ability as a storyteller kind of like got better because you know how to shoot a story, you know how a story should 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 look and how how it should be cut together. But when you're so focused on being a one man band and you're so uh, overloaded with all that shit, I don't think that your storytelling part of your brain is working as hard as the rest of your brain working like learning how all the gear works how it all works together you know contacting vendors making sure you have everything in on time yeah when, like you can't do all those like like you know there's not everybody's like a robert rodriguez where right. you, know, you have your own setup and you do everything and you can afford the time to come up with the story and develop the story then shoot the story then cut the story then color the story then score the story but also i love rodriguez yeah. but you also see the limit of that, yeah. Of that, with his work. And I, I, I think his work is fantastic, but if you're trying to get, like, I want to, you know, I want to be Ridley Scott level. Mm-hmm. You know what right. I mean? Like, yeah. I want to be, you know, David Fincher level. And that isn't a one-man band game. They don't do everything, yeah. Well, there's this paradoxical thing you were talking about cloning yourself. So in reality, so here's the question. Here's the burning question for you, Mike. You wake up tomorrow, you can you can clone. So the question is, you get on a set tomorrow morning, do you clone 10 Mike Petchies? And you say, okay, Mike Petchie number two, you're gonna go do lighting. Mike Petchie number three, you're gonna go do sound. Mike Petchie number four, you're gonna go do set dressing and, and production design. Or do you wake up tomorrow morning and you say, I'm not gonna clone. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna, is I'm going to create like Mike Petchie number two and all he is is the, is the HR guy who's going to go out and source me the talent to find people who are fucking incredible at what they do, even if they're different than you. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So that's the paradoxical thing: is 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 you know, do you clone yourself? 
because you know that the clone of you can do it the way you want? Or do you go out and find those people well, I mean, honestly, dude, who aren't clones of you, but maybe are specialists? That's right. So there's, your, so there's the burning question. Well, right? I mean, honestly, my answer to that question would be, I would probably clone Tone. I'd clone him. No, seriously. And I, I don't mean that in like, you know, I mean, other than, you know, sleeping together kind of stuff. Like it would be, it, because you have gone through the, the training sessions on all these different roles for me. Yeah. And so like training Dave, like it's, it's really, you just want that. You want to have, at least in your key, in your key help positions, right? Because the, you're always going to be co you're always going to be collaborating with like top of the line mm -hmm. DPs and, and top of the line folks, and you're, you're going to be casting those people and yeah. bringing those folks in. But when it comes to the day to day, it's it, it's also important to have people around that know how you operate. Exactly. Yeah. Well, the re the reality is, you did clone yourself, and you what you did is is you've worked with Tony so long that now. He, he represents. Oh, yeah, I just made, I made like a, a shorter, right. shorter, right. like fat yeah. yeah, very Freudian. <laughs> <laughs> He's sort of the Ron Jeremy version of you, you know? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Shouldn't be a porn star, but he is. But he is yeah. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. He's there. Everyone likes it. Yeah. All right, all right, so. all right. I think, I think we've hit our point for this episode. Um, like, I really appreciate this conversation has gone a lot of really good spots. Um, and it's a lot of fun. I'm really happy to have met you. Likewise. And um, I'm, I'm pumped that we were able to hook up. This was completely unplanned. I always love reconnecting mm -hmm. with the team. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, Dave, I'm happy that you had an experience with a street hooker here in Vegas. <laughs> um, and then, Tony, I'm happy that you're finally on the show with us. Yeah. Sounds um, good. Let's uh, get back out to NAB, stare at a bunch of gear. Yeah, and, and tonight we have a list of uh, bars, local bars. So if you guys want to go around with us after we finish everything tonight, awesome. Yeah, yeah. we'll mm -hmm. do that. All right, thank you everybody for listening. All right, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of In Love with the Process. We couldn't have done it without the help of our sponsors, and we have a few new ones this month that I'm excited to tell you about. First, Puget Systems. Are you a video editor, sound composer, or graphic artist looking to upgrade your system to something bigger and better, not finding the options you need from a Mac? Then make the switch to a PC and never look back. I did years ago and have been editing everything I do on my Genesis 2 systems from Puget. Go to PugetSystems.com and have the perfect system built for your needs at a price that doesn't put you out of business. They make it really easy to browse for the right hardware by selecting what software you use. Go over to PugetSystems.com and tell them that Mike Petchy sent you. Azo Monitors. So you're color grading your latest video and when you upload it online, the colors look completely different. Or when you watch it on TV at home, it looks way too dark. That's because you need a color calibrated monitor. Azo makes these self-calibrating monitors that give you peace of mind knowing that when you slightly shift a hue or bring down the brightness that the people at home will see it the way that you want it. I use a CG277 self-calibrating monitor for every project I color grade and honestly I couldn't live without it. Go to azo.com to learn more. One of our new sponsors this month are our good buddies over at Rule Boston Camera. They are the best camera rental place in New England and my favorite place to go in Boston to test new gear. 
As a freelancer, I had to learn how to keep my overhead costs low. That means renting most of my equipment. This allows me to offer the latest and greatest new camera gear to my clients, fully equipped with the latest upgrades and tweaks. So if you're in Boston and looking to rent gear, go to rule.com. I can. Battery-powered LED lights, wireless video systems, camera support, stabilizers, and more. These guys do it all. I've been using their Raiden series and their Featherweight series LED lights for years now. I mean, I use it for every documentary I do. I've used it in every music video I've done. They're battery powered, they're lightweight, and I can set them up wherever I want. Go through their website and check out a lot of their new toys. And honestly, if you're a fan of the show and you're looking to buy any of this gear, drop me an email and I can hook you up with some really sweet deals. Go to ICANN.com and browse around and try not to get too excited, you nerds. <laughs> and finally, McFarland and Pesci. Together, myself, Tony, and director Ian McFarland have been creating films, music videos, and commercials for over 10 years. Want to see the cool stuff that we've been working on lately? Go to McFarlandandPesci.com. And honestly, guys, I really want to uh, thank you so much for listening. And I want to apologize for how long it has taken for these episodes to come out. The past two months have been insane for us. And I have a lot of really exciting news coming out in the next couple months that I am just chomping at the bit to share with you. Um, so please continue to listen. Uh, within the next few weeks, we should have the second part of our Vegas trip ready to rock. Uh, I'll be hanging out with the boys from Puget. And we're talking about the Mac to PC switch. We'll also get into sponsorships a bit more. And then we talk about food and barbecue because those guys are a bunch of food nerds just like me. So definitely subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. We're on iTunes, we're on SoundCloud, and we're also on YouTube. So it is in love with the process. And thank you so much. I'm Mike Petchy, and I will see you next episode.